Hey, welcome back to These Go to 11. I am Nathan Liss, Zachary Bartles today, uh, and I am excited to be here uh, with uh, Mark Ward, who is the author of a new book uh, called Authorized, uh, and the subtitle is The Use, is it, what is it, The Use and Misuse of the King James Bible? That's right. And uh, this is a really, A, a great cover design. As someone who's done some uh, some cover design and who's fought with editors at, at uh, Big Six Publishers about cover design, I look at this and go, man, that jumps right out. It's clean. It's uh, really unique. What a great cover. Um, and, you know, we're not supposed to buy books, according to the cover, but you can sure turn somebody off or lose them. Uh, and the content of it, I think, is uh, – I think you, you've really hit a good balance uh, with this book. But before we get into kind of the nuts and bolts or the meat and bones or whatever we want to call it, uh, let's hear a little bit about you and uh, you know just your background and what led you to write this book. Yeah, I'm Mark Ward. I am an academic editor at Lexham Press. Although when I first pitched this book, I was not working for Lexham. I happen to be working for them now. And one of the reasons I'm working for them is that I had such a great, great experience publishing the book with them. They provided a lot of great editorial and marketing help and that cover design, which I also am thrilled with. But the reason I wrote the book, uh, you know, is everyone who asked me that, I feel like I have to tell my entire life story. So let's try to boil it down to the most immediate answer. That is, I saw in Christianity Today a poll uh, that was done by the Pew Research Center and Mark Knoll. So these are responsible individuals. And it said mm-hmm. that of everybody who pulled down a Bible in America to read it, 55% pulled down a King James. And I was shocked. Oh. I, yeah, I, I've seen some other stats that make me wonder if that really is accurate or maybe I'm misunderstanding how the question was asked. But again, this is Mark Knoll in the Pew Research Center. So I decided I've got to do something about this because – I had grown up on the King James. I had been in a King James-only church in high school. And although I had a good experience there and went to their Christian school and loved my teachers and still do, I came to realize over the years of a lot of seminary and uh, personal Bible study that I was missing more than I knew because of changes in the English language. And I felt that was the niche that was missing in books. We had books on textual criticism but books that were kind of about the King James controversy, but focused on English. This is the only book I'm aware of that hits that niche. Okay. Now, you know how you sometimes will be part of a uh, a Facebook group, um, and it's like Reformed Baptists or, uh, I don't know, uh, Five Point Calvinists, and they'll have rules and things that are non-negotiable. Like you, you're in here and you have to just agree about, you know, point A – or X or whatever. Uh, on this program, we pronounce it niche, not niche. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> All right. Um, and it's not because we're pretentious. It's just because that's right, man. And um, you know, that, that's a, a fascinating uh, kind of approach to it. And what I think was the most uh, beneficial aspect of it was the – I mean I, I've been talking about this for years. I had never heard the phrase false friends, and I don't know if you invented that or if that's – uh, a, a linguist phrase that people use in general, but can you start kind of sussing out the, the content here by describing what a false friend is and giving a few examples? Yeah, you zeroed in on the most important concept. I did not invent that terminology. It was 
uh, introduced to me, I don't know how many years ago, but it was John McWhorter in his book, Words on the Move, that reminded me of this terminology while I was writing the book. And I knew immediately this is the key. I needed a label to distinguish two different types of words or punctuation marks or syntax that I saw tripping up contemporary readers who pick up the King James. One is dead words, words that we all know we don't know. So mm. nobody says besom, nobody says chambering, <laughs> nobody says emerald, nobody says wantonness. And as soon as I make the uh, the bold suggestion that maybe just maybe King James readers aren't getting as much out of the King James as they think, they're not understanding it all, they say, oh, you lazy bones – you need to pick up a dictionary. You know, I think Trump actually used the word wantonness in a tweet this morning, but <laughs> yeah, okay, there you go. You got me. One exception. But actually, you can check this sort of stuff out. You can go on to the corpus of historical American English that BYU runs and the now corpus, News on the Web, and check to see are words used. And you can easily ascertain a word like this. No, it, it is not used anymore, or very, very seldom, or in only context that you know, are appealing to um, uh, history. But uh, that's not the only category of words and other linguistic features that um, that cause misunderstandings now. And the other is what I call false friends. Words and punctuation marks and other linguistic features that we don't know we don't know. And the one that really kind of got me into this was in 1 Kings 18.21, a passage that is kind of stirring. So I heard it preached numerous times. And so I'd had this verse memorized. Uh, Elijah says to the priests on Mount Carmel, and I've been there, he said, um, how long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, then follow him. But if Baal be God, then follow him. And I wonder if you can rewind in your mind back to before you encountered my book, what would you have assumed, Zach, that halt means in a context like that? Well, I, I mean, I, I would have known even before I read your book, I, I, I think, but uh, I, I assume that most people think of kind of halt meaning stopping, kind of haltingly right. going between, you know. And actually haltingly going between is getting closer to what the King James translators meant. I think, I mean, I know what I assumed man, my entire life until I was 30 something and writing a textbook for eighth graders and using the King James because I was required to, um, I would have, I assumed it meant stop. How long will you stop between these two opinions? And I've checked with numerous educated people who grew up reading the King James. And I think I found three exceptions, two of whom were scholars. And so that's not fair, but one of whom, I don't know how he got it. So, okay. One person, he got it right. That, that your word halting kind of gets closer. Um, the word actually in Hebrew means limp mm -hmm. and the word halt in 1611 could mean limp. So Jesus in the Gospels heals the halt and the blind, that is people who are lame or limping. And and everybody who reads that today reads right past it, assuming that because we use this word today, halt, and that sense makes sense in context. How long will you stop between two opinions? They don't even realize that they're misunderstanding what the King James translators intended. That's a false friend. Right. So in one case, now, even with the, the anachronistic language, a, yeah, you know that you that you don't know, but you pull a dictionary down off the shelf, and if it's a modern dictionary, even if that word is in there, you still might not get a, a five, a 407-year-old um, definition. But with these false friends, you don't even know to look it up. 
And, you know, I think of something as simple as the word want, which can mean kind of need um, in its use in the King James Bible. And then we're up here in 2018 distinguishing between our wants and needs. And is God really going to supply my every <laughs> want, my desire? You know, and then, and then Joel Osteen is all excited about that. Right. Um, yeah. My brother-in-law, as an Awana clubber at age six or so, went to his leader concerned. And he said, if the Lord is my shepherd, why shall I not want him? <laughs> and I've met more people like that. You know, that's a relatively easy one. That's that is a false friend, but mainly for kids who aren't realizing what's going on. Um, anybody uh, who's a you know, educated person, adult, um, will probably realize that doesn't make any sense. So there must be something I'm misunderstanding here. Um, I so that's a that's a relatively easy false friend, but I think there are plenty, and I found and adduced a lot of them in my book. Plenty of false friends that even educated people, people who pride themselves, as I did, on their ability to decode Elizabethan English and the King James, things that they are missing, these false friends. Okay. Now, another uh, aspect of the book, uh, it seems from a blog post of yours that I, I read is kind of controversial, is your use of 1 Corinthians 14 uh, in a way that's a little bit askew from maybe the original authorial intent in that situation, but but in a way that still, I think, makes sense. Um, and I don't want you to you know give away the whole book so people don't want to buy it, but I think this was also a, a fascinating line of reasoning. What What is it about that passage that informs our approach to the King James Bible? Yeah, I have gotten some flack for this, but I'll only ever get one argument from people who read the book and disagree here and they never develop it. I'm not sure how much, how they could really. Basically, if you look in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul, of course, is dealing with a specific situation in Corinth as he is in all of his occasional letters. And we still want to derive principles from these letters written to very specific occasions. And in this case, he states the principle so openly, so directly, you cannot miss it. He says repeatedly, basically, edification requires intelligibility. Uh So yeah, you got tongue-speaking gifts, great. He says, I do too, but I'd rather speak five words that people can actually understand than 10,000 words in a tongue unless it gets translated. And he explicitly states this principle, edification requires intelligibility. And so I apply this to Bible translation. Um, Yeah, there are difficult words in the Bible. Peter said of what Paul wrote, that there are some things that are hard to understand. So I'm not talking about dumbing down the Bible. I'm, I'm talking about not adding unnecessary difficulties. Uh, and I think 1 Corinthians 14 is very much apropos. If you want to edify people, you should not say halt. You should say limp. <laughs> if you want to edify, you should not say chambering. You should say fornication or immorality. You shouldn't say emerald. You should, you should say tumor. You shouldn't say besom. You should say broom. You, uh, it's really actually important. There's actually a Bible principle here. This isn't just uh, an, an issue of preference. I'm standing on scripture when I say we need to have the Bible in our English, not someone else's. Yeah, and, and, well, you really make a good case here, and I think that you're picking – I know you're not picking a fight on this, and, 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 and you do acknowledge the strengths of the King James Bible, and I, I never want to downplay that. Um, but don't you think that going in, you had to know people who were vehemently against um, – anyone who would challenge the 
AV 1611 for life uh, mentality. If it was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. They're, they're not going to hear anything. They're just going to come back with not with uh, logic or or really engage the arguments, but with kind of anger. Sure, and of course, you know, I'll actually turn that back on myself and say. I've done a lot of soul searching here, and I imagine there are areas of my life where I'm not listening to others and I ought to. So this is an equal opportunity sin. But yes, indeed, King James Onlyism has a reputation for online abrasiveness, and I already knew that it was deserved, and I've discovered it again. However, I'll say I have heard from the very most gracious of the King James Only folks, and I've really appreciated it. Uh, So Stephen Anderson gave you a call? (laughs) Yeah, there are, you know, the New Testament talks, Paul talks about teachers like this. Um, You know, it's funny, it's ironic, but almost all the scripture memory I've done has been in the King James. So the verses come to me in King James, it's 2 Timothy 2, the servant servant of the Lord must not strive. In other words, he must not be quarrelsome. And there are people who just like to pick fights. Um, However, the great majority of people who are influenced by King James onlyism, they they don't bear the, anything like the responsibility of the leaders or even of their pastors. They're just sitting in the pew and they're told by an authoritative person who ought to know better than they do that this is the very best translation and everybody should use it and only it. And I was one of those kids listening to that and accepting it at age 13, 14, 15 or so. Um, and my pastor was not a jerk. He was not a cult leader, not a rabble rouser. Uh, He was just following what he himself had been told. So I want to show a lot of mercy on people like this, and I want to be really careful in pushing someone to go past their conscience. So that's why I want to lean very hard on the Bible. And 1 Corinthians 14's argument is where I lean a lot of weight because the safest way to push someone past a conscience that's too sensitive or sensitive about the wrong thing is to give them Bible and then let the Spirit push them uh, into the right application. That's what I try to do in my book. Now, do you really get into um, some of the questions of the different uh, manuscript families and uh, the Textus Receptus versus, um, you know, the the older uh, manuscripts that were concocted and cooked up by uh, the communists and the Pope? Uh, uh-huh. and the liberals? Yeah, that that's a great question. Um, you you do go for humor on this podcast, uh, and I'm not being very funny. Uh, it's You're also, I want to point out, not laughing at, at my jokes. But I recognize their humor. Yeah. Like, I acknowledge it okay. publicly. And I, that I appreciate. It's humorous. Yeah, so I totally get your textual criticism humor, um, and I'll see if I can come up with, with any textual critical jokes. But in this case, uh, all I can do is stick to my script and say, I, I wrote 10 paragraphs on textual criticism, all in an effort to... Um, to separate that issue from translation. Mm-hmm. And the King James only folks have, the, the mainstream have consi- consistently said that they are not King James only, actually. They are Textus Receptus only, the Greek New Testament underlying the King James. But I've asked them, and I wanted to press this point in this book, okay, so if you're TR only, if that's what you're really trying to preserve, then why don't any of you accept any of the other translations of the TR. I, I, the New King James and the Modern English Version are probably the two major ones, and they've all been panned utterly by the King James Only folks. So I think King James Only still is a totally appropriate title for them, even though 
I, I get why they're trying to say we're TR only. They're trying to distance themselves from truly extreme positions like Peter Ruckman's Jack Hiles, in which you can only get saved by reading the King James or, you know, the King James is absolutely perfect. But if you read the King James only literature, look at their doctrinal statements on their websites, there's a lot of confusion out there. They don't maybe technically say that the King James is perfect, but they treat it like that. They would never suggest that you could alter a single rendering. And they'll say things like this in their doctrinal statements, that the King James is the preserved word of God for English-speaking peoples. And I puzzled over that for years because what, what does it even mean that, the, that a translation could be the preserved word of God? The preservation properly applies to the Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic originals. Um, but as best I can tell, what I think they mean is the King James is perfect. So it's confusing. I don't know always what they think, but as best I can tell, listening to them as carefully as I can, they are really flirting with bibliological heresy here, claiming for a translation what can only be properly claimed for um, the originals. And yet I want to show mercy and grace and patience to people who I think are confused. They don't always – they don't really know what they're saying all the time. Yeah. Now, let, let me play uh, Jack Chick's advocate a minute and say with, with your argument for uh, readability and accuracy, um, you know, you, you emphasize readability, but really at the end of the day, it's not accurate to a reader unless it's readable. So, so the two need to go hand in hand. Uh, what if I said um, all the modern translations that I know of don't distinguish between the singular or plural second person pronouns. They don't have thee and thou for, you know, the old humes, humon, humen, humas. Uh Um, They just have you. And now here I am over here going, well, is this person talking to one person or several people? Uh, And word order, the King James keeps a lot of word order, and it comes off sounding a little funny sometimes, but it emphasizes, for example, um, because the the original manuscripts, the the autographs, not only wouldn't have had uh, capitalization or punctuation, they wouldn't have had spaces. So word order had to stand in for emphasis. And maintaining that and emphasizing it in the King James is a way to be more readable uh, and show what the text really says. And yes, you have a trade-off with some of these minor problems that you point out. Uh, and here, uh, Mark, is, is where I come in with the real spoiler. I actually am King James only. And this is kind of a – you know when like Mike Wallace used to do on 60 Minutes – and he would uh-huh. – I'm just kidding. I'm not. But but how would you respond to that kind of a, uh, a line of, of, of reasoning? Well, you played Jack Chick's advocate pretty well, very well in fact. <laughs> and and maybe that's a little scary. Maybe you really are King James only in your heart. Well, I know this um, guy named the Reverend uh, James King at the James King, King James only preaching, teaching <laughs> ministry. He calls into this show sometimes and he's mentored me, if you will. Uh, great. Well – Actually, I think that argument holds a lot of weight, uh, what you said about thee and thou. And um, I acknowledge in the book that moving to modern contemporary English is a genuine loss in this case. But I point out that every Bible translation into any language involves some kinds of uh, trade-offs, things that you can't 
bring over without a lot of circumlocution or a footnote mm-hmm. into that language because this language just doesn't work the same way. So in Hebrew and in Greek, we've got feminine and masculine words. Well, English doesn't have that at all. So we totally lose all of that linguistic information. And that is helpful sometimes. For example, figuring out what is the antecedent of a given pronoun. Right, yeah. Or, or um, we've got this, something similar going on in Second uh, Timothy 3, where it says, um, I urge you, oh boy, verse 15. I'm actually going to look it up on my Bible software. Uh, Paul is talking to Timothy. He says, um, from childhood, you've been acquainted with the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. Um, and he, then he says, remember from whom thou hast learned these things. And that word whom in Greek, I'm not going to spoil it. You'll have to go look it up, is either singular or plural. But English doesn't have plural whom and singular whom. It just has whom. So we lose that completely. I don't hear anybody complaining about that. There are trade-offs. Yes, that's that's the thing we're losing. But I have to argue that um, a lot, a tons of dead words and false friends far outweigh the yes, undeniable value of the way in which Elizabethan English more closely mimicked second person personal pronouns in Greek. Now, let me get your PhD assessment of what I tell my people at my church. Um, I tell them keep a King James Bible at the ready. Absolutely. But don't make it your primary Bible. Um, have it there because it's useful for a lot of different things. One of them is the, 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 and the, thou and the, uh, uh, word order. And, and sometimes the, the beauty and majesty of, of something that, uh, you know, if you pick up your NIV 2012, you're just going to be like, well, this is, this is not moving at all. A, a Psalm or a, a song. Um, I always say you got to have three categories. I was taught this in uh, hermeneutics class sometime in the 1900s um, <laughs> that that there are really three categories. Um, and you know, I've I've read a ton in between, and people divide it differently. But I like the idea of you've got your word for word, quote unquote. Obviously, word for word translation is impossible, but you've got that that attempt. You've got your dynamic or functional equivalent, thought for thought, and then you've got your more free rather paraphrastic stuff. And I would even put maybe the new living kind of jutting into that category. And I tell people Mm -hmm. have one of each and where you probably want to do most of your Bible reading is right there in the middle, thought for thought, dynamic equivalent. You can read it. You can understand it. You don't have to do a bunch of word studies. You can keep strongs on the shelf. I, I mean, I tell people if you can learn, learn the biblical languages, but I think most people don't have, the room in their lives right now to do that. I remember it being, you know, I spent nine years in college and seminary and, and becoming conversant with biblical Greek and uh, Koine Greek and biblical Hebrew were, were grueling. And so I tell people kind of keep one of each. And if you're doing a study, you're teaching a lesson or something, man, read the text in your ESV, then read it in the King James, or I love the American Standard 1901. I think it's a great translation. And then read it maybe in the, the New Living, or heck, pull out the message and see what uh, what our boy did to it there. And and kind of, you know, use all of them rather than this kind of right. either-or situation. I completely agree with you. And the final chapter of my book makes that point. I basically say 
which Bible translation is the best? All the good ones. We have an embarrassment of riches. There's just absolutely no need for us to be fighting over how many Bible study tools someone is permitted to use. What is a Bible translation? It is a Bible, but in an essence, it's also a Bible study tool, if that makes sense. Um, there are these translations that are that include a little bit more commentary, like you say. Uh, and yet, for me to write them off as um, harmful, uh, you know, why why would I do that? For me personally, it's been 20 years since I bought the Comparative Study Bible that had the King James, the Amplified, the NIV, and the New American Standard Bible in it in four columns parallel. Mm-hmm. And I have that thing all marked up. I I was inoculated against King James onlyism in the I think the best way possible. I was also inoculated against anybody's claims that their translation, their preferred one, is the absolute best in every respect. Because what can I say except the NIV helped me understand? The NASB helped me understand. So did the King James, um, despite the difficulties with um, English. So I, I want all the tools, all the helpful tools I can use. And responsible people who know the original languages, who love the Bible, who spend their lives studying it, like my good friend Andy Nacelli, he said the same thing. His very first recourse in Bible study is other translations beyond the one that kind of is his primary one. That's exactly the way I am, I am to the point that I, I kind of no longer have a primary one. And I think lay people are understandably frustrated by that. They're scared of that. They think that I'm going to be in a morass of scholarly opinions, but that simply hasn't been the case. Uh, I think that a little bit of training in Sunday school on what these translations are like, you know, what is a paraphrase? What is a more formal? What is a more functional translation? Is all regular high school educated, middle class American English speakers need to start getting useful um, insight out of checking multiple Bible translations. I, I keep wondering what what are they so afraid of? What's going to happen? Maybe just maybe people are going to understand the Bible better. Why should we be afraid of that? Now, you brought up earlier one of the other lines of, of uh, argument against kind of broadening our our pool of Bible translations, which was it used to be, and I'm, dude, I'm 40, and I remember very well in a um, not fundamentalist uh, little Baptist church growing up and memorizing tons of scriptures, the same exact words that my dad learned in the 50s at a little country church in Zealand, Michigan, and the same ones that his great, great, great grandfather, like exactly the same words. Everyone had this in common and everyone was learning scripture. Now we have this issue where I sometimes will start like saying, I'll have, a, I'll have the ESV open in front of me at the pulpit and I'll start just saying from memory something and I'll realize as I'm looking down at the verse that I'm spouting off the NIV, which I tried to learn to replace the KJV that I already had lodged in my mind. And I have found that for all the good, and it has been an awful lot of good, that good translations have done for me, really the overabundance of choices has kind of paralyzed a lot of people to the point of we don't, you know, we don't memorize scripture like we used to. What's the solution? I've wondered about that. You know, how can I generalize responsibly on this? A related issue is people will tell me, you know, the King James is so much easier to memorize. Its cadence just, you know, echoes in my mind and heart. And I think, okay, well, um, let me see if I can offer an alternate explanation here. 
you memorized the King James when you were a kid mm. and kids have better ability to memorize. Maybe that's why it feels so much easier to memorize. I, I feel sympathetic toward lay people who are saying, why did they have to change my ESV? Why did they have to change my NIV to the, uh, this latest edition? Um, but I think all these updates that occur on a regular basis, but not every year, um, they can be a great opportunity for us to explain to people, listen, Bible translation is a work that's never done. I quote C.S. Lewis in the book saying, it's no good saying, I'll buy my child a suit once and for all. Well, the child's going to grow. He's going to need a new suit. <laughs> Language changes over time. You you cannot have Bible translation into your language unless you commit as a church to periodic updating. Uh, and I think lay people need to become comfortable with that, although I understand and sympathize with their discomfort. I think yes, and I, I have this in the book. The first chapter is about all the things that we lose as we lose the common standard that the King James has been for centuries for English speaking Christianity. Um, and we lose a number of things like you described, but I think that we're never going to get that day back. What, who could, could possibly have enough power to make that happen? We don't have a King or a queen of England to, you know, prop up one translation Warren, and kind of suppress Rick the other. Warren could do it. Except that in his purpose-driven life, he quotes like every Bible translation there is to the point where even I got frustrated. He's like, this one's got purpose in this verse. Oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I even started to wonder why it's, it kind of makes it look like he's just choosing the, <laughs> the translation makes that says that most lady wants to say. Um, so I do think we need to cap it. <laughs> I wrote an article I haven't published yet called, you know, stop, basically stop making new Bible translations. I think we have enough good ones. Let's use these ones and invest in them uh, till people kind of become familiar with them. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. And I am worried about the overall decrease in trust that comes when it looks like people are making translations to suit their own doctrine. But the major ones done by committees that are sold in your Christian bookstore, they are trustworthy and they they have made an effort not to be pushing the agenda of one denomination or theological perspective. They're there for the church to be used for the entire church. And, and I think the benefits outweigh the detriments that I don't care to deny. Yeah. And, and you know, I think a, a big we, we may see we may see a ceiling on this, a big um component of why there are so many and, and, and they all came kind of at once, I think has to do with, I, I have a lot of contacts in Christian publishing and I know every major publisher uh, wants to have their own translation uh, so they don't have to deal with the, the agreements with the copyright holders on these things and they can do their own special editions. There's no licensing involved. And I think we're getting near the point where with, through consolidation and purchasing, there are fewer companies out there and through just newer and newer. I mean, um, man, recently I got the, uh, the Spurgeon study Bible and it was the Christian standard Bible, the CSB. And I said, what the world is this? And I realized later it was the Holman Christian standard Bible. Um, they'd rebranded it. I, I think we are getting close to a point where that might kind of max out. Um, but when you talk about you know, people being worried about uh, updates and and not liking updates, I, I confess I don't like in general the updating of text. When the ESV committee came out, uh, I don't know if it was two three years ago, and said this is going to be a final version of this permanent text permanent edition. text, I I kind of cheered. I was like, you know what? When when it's no longer 
like adequate. Someone will make a new one, but I don't like the changing and morphing unless that's the shtick, like the net Bible or whichever one that's the whole or the web Bible, whichever, whichever one's that's the, that's the whole shtick. But, but when I look at the, the NASB, um, the kind of original and then the update in the late nineties, dude, that was a gong show. They, they gutted it of much of what made it so um, kind of simultaneously accurate and readable and made it just like everything else. And, and, and I wonder if maybe it's kind of like, you know, there are tons and tons of empty houses in, in a lot of communities, but we keep building because builders need jobs and no one's going to deny that. Uh, and, and maybe there's just, there's this machine, right? There's this, this apparatus and this industry. And what are they going to do if they're not, if they're not continually updating the Bible and, and tweaking it, if that's your, your, uh, what you do for a living, right? That plays into, I mean, what you're saying, how can I possibly deny that uh, there's anyone out there who has selfish reasons for wanting to produce a new Bible? You know, I can't say categorically, no, that doesn't exist. But what can I do? I can look at the people who are actually doing the work, like Douglas Moo, like Mark Strauss, like Craig Blomberg. I can read their books. These are guys on the NIV committee or Bill Mounts is on the NIV and the ESV committee, or Vern Poitras is somebody that I've worked kind of closely with. I run his website. I admire him a great deal. Uh, he worked on the ESV, Wayne Grudem, C. John Collins, J.I. Packer, John Piper, who didn't work on the ESV but has promoted it. What, what, what is the motivation of these people that I do actually feel like I have some contact with through their books and articles and sermons and lectures online? Is, is there any way I can say of them, ah, oh, they're just in it for the money? I would, I would caution Christians to be very careful before they just toss off that kind of barb. That is slander. And I'm not saying you've done that. I, I think You're you raising are. <laughs> but the King James only folks have done that. That's their first resort. They say, ah, all these new translations only exist because publishers, they want to make more money. And I, I happen to work for a publisher and, you know, actually the laborer is worthy of his hire. And I hope my publisher makes money. I, it's not that's not necessarily a bad thing but then when i look at the people who are actually doing the work are they motivated by the money what kind of car is doug moo driving somehow i doubt it's a ferrari or, Ma, or a maserati uh these are people who've dedicated themselves to serving the church and maybe taken all together we can say yeah there's probably some unhealthy forces at work you know producing more bibles we wish we didn't have this situation. Um, but then I look at look at it from the other perspective and I say, well, the people who are actually paid to do the work are doing a great job and they're helping me understand the Bible. So why should I complain? Certainly, why should I cast doubt on their motivations? That That's not a Christian thing to do. Well, and, and I mean, I didn't say that they were all after money. I think they're all just after, you know, furthering the new age uh, conspiracy right. toward the one the the one world new new world order, but uh, there's oh, that too. Ju- just I I I hate to to spring this on you just now, but uh, the president uh, just tweeted and used the word besom. You know he would, but that probably was a misspelling <laughs> of kofif. <laughs> kofife. Kofife. 
<laughs> you know, I only ever read that word. I don't watch any network news or anything, so I never did hear anybody pronounce it. I don't know how that non-word is actually pronounced, I confess. <laughs> well, and how long until that's uh, so much a part of the, the everyday parlance that it's in a Bible translation? That's the real question. Um, <laughs> it, it could happen. It could happen. Now, is your your uh, PhD from Bob Jones University in um, translation and this kind of stuff, or what, what? What is your credential here? My my major was formerly called New Testament interpretation, and I minored in theology and Old Testament. Uh, so no, but. Uh, of course, I spent a lot of time in Greek classes, and I was particularly fascinated with lexicography and linguistics because I felt like they helped sharpen my tools and my tool belt uh, to make sure I was understanding what Paul said, what Moses said, what Jesus said. So um, I was heavily influenced by the guy, Randy Leedy, who um, diagrammed the Greek New Testament for Bible works. Mm-hmm. That's probably how most people know him if they do. I look at he that all – I look at that every week. No joke. Uh-huh. Are you serious? Yes. I, I, got, I still have Bible works, uh, what, 7.0 and, uh-huh. and rest in peace Bible works. It was a, yep. such a great tool. But I, I, I use that diagramming tool every single week. Uh, well, Dr. Leedy – Dr. Liddy is absolutely fantastic. He is a member of my old church back in Greenville that I was at for 18 years, and he was my dissertation committee advisor, and he is Mr. Detail-Oriented. <laughs> uh, that job suits him so well. Well, he really turned my mind on to the connection between linguistics and exegesis. I read James Barr's The Semantics of Biblical Language and the book by his evangelical protege, who actually is a Bob Jones graduate too, Moises Silva. Um, biblical words and their meaning. And among other tasks tasks like that, uh, books like those, I came to really enjoy linguistics. I also am a writer and always have been even before I knew it and cared a lot about proper English usage. And when I was taught linguistics, I started to realize what is the definition of proper? It's what proper people do. Um, And that I started to, to realize other people around me pastors and other people I respect, nonetheless, are frequently not quite understanding how language works. And so I began to pay more and more attention to it in my writing and kind of discovered my niche, as they say. Nice. Now, give me your your take on this. Doug Moo came to Grand Rapids a couple years ago. That yeah, was more than a couple. I'm, everything seems like a couple years ago to me now. It's probably seven years ago. Uh, the 2012 was just about to come out, and I, the new NIV. Um, which I admit, even though I know it, it's a good move and I, it, incre- it improved the text nine out of ten times, I admit I sort of felt like like someone was violating my childhood and like you know like, like when you see that they're doing a live action Smurfs or something, you're like you can't do that. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, he he came and and uh, basically it was uh, one of these things where you're like oh a really cheap conference and then you're like oh a really long commercial um, and and mm-hmm. he made a extended sort of defense of the uh, sort of vaguer and even formally inaccurate, grammatically inaccurate use of they yeah. as a, yeah. a singular pronoun and, and that sort of thing. And, and the defense was, of course, um, this is how people talk. Um, if you say he 
in, in the world we live in now, people think you just mean men. If you say they and it's singular, nobody bats an eye. Do you, do you think there's a, a, I don't know, a limit to that? Or, I mean, at some point, I could see there being a, you know, I've heard of the emoji Bible, and there's all sorts of things that could get to the point of being almost sacrilegious. How do we find that that limit where we don't go any further? Yeah, um, I think that Doug Moo has demonstrated that he does have a limit there because the one of the selling points of that revision of the NIV was that they used a, a linguistic corpus. I, I don't particularly recall which one. It may have been the one I was mentioning, the, the now corpus. But the, so they're using a, a huge, like billion word collection of writings of actual English that, you know, journalists around the world are using. Of course, the new international version is international. They're not just doing American English. And so they can point scientifically to what do people actually say? And they can trace some of the trends in pronoun usage through a tool like that. So the limit is what is English right now? And there are I would say, well-established methods for answering that question. Um, the King James only folks do like to toss out the emoji Bible. And before that, it was the Ebonics Bible as these utter, utterly ridiculous, uh, you know, bastardizations of the Bible. And I say, okay, who is actually taking the emoji Bible seriously? Okay, yes. If, if anyone ever does that, then I'll complain. But everybody knows it's a joke. <laughs> Everybody uh, recognizes that – everybody responsible recognizes that the message is not a joke but a paraphrase. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really see it as creating doctrinal problems or problems within the church. Um, so I think that ends up being uh, a scare tactic to say, oh, we're going to dumb down the language you know, of the Bible so badly that you know, we're going to lose truth. I say, no, um, that's the same complaint people have been making about the English language itself for its entire existence. And as one of my favorite writers said, you know, people love to say that English is going to hell in a handbasket. And he says, well, it must be an awfully slow handbasket. He says, they've been saying this for centuries and the kinds of things they complain about, John McWhorter loves to bring this up. He's my favorite linguist. He's going to appear in the authorized documentary that Faith Life is putting out. Nice. I haven't announced publicly yet. I'm here for the first time I'll announce you it. You are announcing it year. publicly. Oh! Yes. Yeah, McWhorter points, to, he loves to pull out 19th century usage manuals and pull out words uh, that people complained against bitterly back then that we totally accept today. And of course, I cannot think of an example right now, but they're utterly common words. Uh, the, everybody's nervousness about the, f the future of English as if we're all going to descend into grunting. I I'm just <laughs> not nervous. It's not going to happen. People are always going to want to communicate to one another. And there are going to be people who want to do it in a refined way, in a respectable way in, in English-speaking society. I I'm just not concerned. I think that uh, even non-Christian people like McWhorter actually just read an article by him about, you know, what do we do about transgender people and the pronouns they want? Um, they recognize that English um, has this little difficulty right now. It's been lasting actually quite a while as to the generic singular pronoun, what, which one can, should you use? Um, and I, I think we have to wait for the natural evolution of English. There isn't a, Jeez, you know, a cabal. Of course you're pro-evolution and you don't even believe in the King James Bible. Now you got me. 
Now you better strip that out. And uh, in fact, people do invest uh, language change with moral uh, quality, and they commonly talk as if language should not change. But I like to point out to people: every word you just used to say that is is the result of linguistic change over many centuries. It's not something you can get away from. Yeah, right. And and of course, word usage will always determine meaning. I I, I just my worry is not that you know we we've got to put a, a cap on it and say no more change, but that when you get to the point where the internet is is precipitating change so quickly, and Bible translations are coming out so quickly. Um, I don't think it's happened at this point, but I could see uh, us coming to a point where uh, Bibles become obsolete pretty quick as the language comes and goes. And uh, it again, it's at the end of the day, boil down all the not all, but two thirds of the panic over we're going to have too many Bibles. And I'm like, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't think there could be too many Bibles. That, that's a good problem to have, right? I mean, right. that's like having too much sunshine or, you know, t- too many tacos. It's just impossible. So, uh-huh. I, I agree. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, the, one of the best problems I have in my life, uh, in part because it's given me this niche that I can write on and people have found helpful. I think people actually, at least a lot of my readers, like to be calmed down. They like me to say, okay, don't worry. Here's how this is actually a good thing and not a bad thing. All right, man. Any other uh, any other selling points on this thing that will get everybody running over on their way to Missional Wear, our sponsor, where they should go and pick up some uh, beer steins with these Go to 11 logos on them and stuff like that, um, or on their way to uh, pick up the Summer of Gut Check t-shirt because uh, – we're not going to be putting out any more gut check podcasts until some people buy some stinking t-shirts uh, on the way they can stop uh, at Amazon and pick up a copy of authorized the use and misuse of the King James Bible by Mark Ward. Um, g- give me a, another, uh, another beautiful benefit. There are many Christian people in the United States who are not King James only, but who have a brother-in-law who is, And I'm sensing, and this is my purpose, one of my big purposes in writing the book, that my book is helping them know what to say. Uh, Uh, Whether they'll actually hand the book to their brother-in-law or not, I don't know. It kind of depends on how intense the brother-in-law is about this issue. Um, I think it would be totally appropriate to hand to him because it's formally neutral on textual criticism. People who prefer the Textus Receptus as mainstream King James Onlyism does – uh, or at least says they they do they do this is their their uh, their main value they say they should be able to read my book and agree with every word the the principle there applies no matter what Greek New Testament you use uh, I also don't talk about textual criticisms in part so that my argument can be accessible to people who don't understand Greek so there's no Greek or Hebrew you should be able to read this book. Um, if all you know is English, if you can't read English, you're going to have a little trouble. But if you can read English, then this is the book for you. Nice. Now, do you have a study guide or anything where a, a church, a uh, small group or Sunday school could go through together? I've been thinking about doing that. Do you think I should? Uh, I Probably, yeah. Yeah. I, I came out with a, a suspense novel and Thomas Nelson was like, where's the study guide? I was like, what are you talking about? It's uh-huh. like. It's like people like shooting each other. Like you need a study guide so that the book groups can do it. That's a, that's a good, that's a good marketing tool, man. Although not as good as a documentary for crying out loud. 
Um, yeah, I am super jazzed. Now, is that going to be uh, like a two-hour, one-shot kind of thing, or like six seg- you know, episodes that you know people can work their way through, or, or do you not know yet? It'll be a one-hour, one-shot kind of thing, and I think it'll be for those people who uh, don't quite have the energy or willpower to read a book, and it'll be for those people who enjoyed the book and would like to see some of it dramatized. Uh, we've come up with some, if I do say so myself, pretty hilarious and entertaining and instructive ways of getting across the basic argument. Nice. Well, hey, I will get a hold of that when that comes out, and I, I will show that to my people. I got a Wednesday night class where we talk about this kind of thing quite frequently. Cool. Um, and yeah, man, thank you for your time. Very interesting stuff. Again, pick up uh, a copy of this puppy. Uh, if nothing else, just to look at how cool the cover is. And uh, I, I want to go on. I've not heard of Lexum Press. I want to go check out if if uh, it's all this this uh, kind of I would I would call it very kind of modern looking to the point of being ahead of its time over here. Um, and we've got some great designers. So when does Lexum Press's uh, house translated uh, version of the Bible come out? It already has the Lexum English Bible. Lexum Press is a division of Logos Bible Software. Uh, the company is known as Faith Life, and that's my full-time employer. Um, so we get to do some really neat things at the confluence of book publishing, you know, in physical form and digital publishing. And the Lexum English Bible is one of those things. It was actually one of our earlier projects, and we're talking about what we can do with it. In fact, we've had some of the very same conversations. You know, uh, this is convenient for us on the one hand, but also we've got a bunch of people who care about the Bible, and there are some neat things that we think we could do with reader's editions and other things with the Lexham English Bible. We really think that we could serve the church with it and have already done so. Nice. I was kidding. Very fascinating. All right, man. Thank you so much uh, for your time. Thank you for and, having uh, me. We will, uh, oh, you know, I got to end this way. This is Nathan's whole thing. And this isn't a euphemism for anything weird. He says, Mark, we just rocked the Casbah. These go to 11.